Father, thank you for a chance to teach tonight on rebellion and authority issues. And Father, um, help me as I speak. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak in a way that's understood. Help us to see things from your eyes, to see rebellion through your eyes. And Father, um, there's no darkness in you. You're light. And we're your children. So we want to be like you. We want to get rid of any darkness that's in us. And so, Father, help us to get rid of any rebelliousness that's in us and also help us see clearly how we can take that darkness and remove it from others as we partner with you. Father, put a fence now around us that nothing would interrupt this time. Protect us, protect our loved ones that aren't here with us right now so that they don't need our attention. Even protect the things we own so that they don't distract us while we're here. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, I'm Mike Banker, and today's topic is rebellion and authority issues. Or you could say rebellion and rebellious authority, uh, because that exists also, doesn't it? There's lots and lots of examples in Scripture of rebellious authorities, not just rebellious followers. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a word for rebellion. It's the word mara, and it means to rebel, to be contemptuous. In the Septuagint, which is the oldest Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it says to reject and not to recognize. So it's kind of like they turned their back on the authority. They don't listen anymore. They don't recognize their authority. They reject the authority. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, you'll also see the word stubborn and the word stiff-necked in the same area as you see this word mara. Now, one important aspect of rebellion is it's an attitude, not just an action. It's an attitude, not just an action. Is disobedience the same as rebellion? Well, it's not exactly the same. For example, this little boy is supposed to walk two blocks to school and his parents leave for work and he walks out the door but then he, and he walks a short way, but then he goes home and he closes the door and stays in the house. And so when his parents come home at noon, he's still there. He's not at school. So is this little boy, did he disobey his parents? Yes, his parents said go to school, but he didn't. But in order to know if he's rebellious, you have to know what his attitude is, what his heart is towards his parents. And so the parents said, so why didn't you go to school? And he said, well, I started to go, but there was this really mean dog and he chased me. So I ran in the house and I closed the door and the dog is sleeping outside our entryway even now. So you see, you could say that this little boy was disobedient, but you can't say he was rebellious. He didn't reject his parents' authority. 
he did not um, he was not contemptuous towards his parents he didn't have this rebellious attitude towards them now here's another example of disobedience versus rebellion so this little boy he did something wrong so his mother said I want you to go sit in the corner on that chair and I want you to face the corner for 10 minutes so dutifully he goes and he sits on the chair and faces the corner but he yells from the chair I might be sitting down on the outside but I'm standing up on the inside so he was obedient he was obedient was he rebellious Yeah, he was really had a bad attitude towards his mother. He didn't recognize her authority in this situation, and he didn't accept her uh, discipline. And so we could say he was obedient, but he was rebellious. And so rebellion and disobedience aren't exactly the same. Rebellion involves an attitude. It's an attitude first, and then uh, actions of disobedience. So there's some examples in Scripture. There's many examples of rebellion in Scripture. But one of the most um, familiar ones is the story of King Saul. God told King Saul to go and totally destroy this group of people. They had lived in the land for 400 years, and yet their sin just multiplied and increased for 400 years. And now the Israelites were entering the land, and God said, that's it. I've been patient 400 years. They haven't changed. And so so Saul was instructed to destroy everything, but he didn't. And so Samuel, the prophet Samuel, when he came, he heard sheep bleeding. And so he said, Saul, what is this? I hear sheep bleeding. And Saul said, oh, those are the spoils from our, our, our war. And Samuel said, but God said to destroy everything. He said, yeah, but uh, we're going to offer them as a sacrifice. So he tried to describe what he had done as good. But it wasn't. So Samuel confronted him again. And, um, and this time, what did Saul do? Saul blamed it He said on the others. He said, it wasn't my idea. It was their idea. They wanted to keep those sheep. And, um, and then Samuel saw that he also kept Agag, the king alive and Samuel was furious that uh, Samuel would do this and so at every step Saul made an excuse for himself he did not accept responsibility and he did not repent for what he did and this is where Samuel says God desires obedience not sacrifice that verse comes from this story and so then God removed Saul as king and removed his Holy Spirit in response. So the point here is, and you can see this in your book, is that Saul knew what he was doing was wrong. He tried to redefine it as being good when he was confronted by Samuel. He, then later he tried to excuse his actions, blaming it on others. And so he did not repent he did not repent for his disobedience. This shows an attitude of rebellion. And so God said of Saul that he has turned back from following me. So it's like he's turned his back on God. He's turned his back on authority. And so this shows that he's done this deliberately. 
It was a decision that he made to turn away from God. In another translation, it says he's cast off God's governing. And so this is rebellion. It's a, it involves this kind of attitude of turning away, turning your back on the authority, not just disobedience. Now, can you tell that somebody's rebellious by looking at them? Okay, well, I was in Minneapolis. I was downtown, and um, we were walking down the street, and I saw this guy with his Harley. And he um, was dressed in black, his black vest, you know, and tattoos all over his arms, and a uh, ring in his nose, uh, earrings. Uh, he had a mohawk, you know, greased up, nice tall mohawk. And But as I was walking by, he was talking about John Piper's sermon. I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I stopped to talk to him. I said, so um, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And I said, are you rebellious? He said, no. Uh, I'm, I'm not rebellious. He said, uh, I don't even have a parking ticket. Meaning that he always follows the rules. So then I said, so why do you dress like this? He said, well, everybody pays attention when I dress like this. So see, it's more of a worthiness issue than it was a rebellion issue. Now, yes, God does tell us not to get tattoos and so on, but his attitude towards authority didn't seem to be rebellious. Here's another example. This woman came for sessions, and she was part of a goth group. So goth kind of, they worship death. They listen to death music. They wear black clothes, and they wear white makeup, and... I said, so are you a Christian? She said, yes, I am. I said, so do you listen to all this death music? She said, no, I'm a Christian. Why would I do that? And I said, but um, so you're not goth. You're not, uh, you don't um, delight in death. And She said, no, not at all. So there she's sitting in all black with her white makeup. And so I said, so why? Why are you part of this group? Why did you join these, this goth group? She said, well, when I was in high school, I was fat, and the only people that accepted me was the goth group. How sad. How sad that she didn't get a sense of belonging from other Christians because of her weight. And so again, from the outside you say, oh, she's rebellious, but you need to know the heart. You need to know the attitude of the person, not just what you see. So you might suspect rebellion, but you can't know rebellion without knowing the attitude, without knowing the heart. Now, sometimes rebellion is for gain and for fame, like Saul. But oftentimes with Christians, it's this kind of premeditated decision to go against our own conscience and to go against the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So God warns us, and we go anyway. Our conscience warns us, and we do it anyway. So this shows this kind of attitude of casting off God's governance, not turning our back on his guidance, his authority in our life. So in this case, then, we knew it was wrong even before we did it, but we decided to do it anyway. And so James talks about this being um, tempted by our desires, which means then that the sin comes from within us. It's not out there. The sin comes from within us. 
Yes, there are temptations out there, but we ourselves, as an act of our own will, choose to enter into the temptation. We choose to sin. And that comes from our desire within. So, rebellion is an attitude first and action second. A disobedient act may or may not have a rebellious attitude. So, the one that's under authority might rebel against their authority, but the authority themselves might also rebel against God. God has established an order to things, and sometimes the authorities rebel against God. If you read the book of Kings in the Bible, you'll see that there's some kings that obeyed God and lots of other kings that disobeyed him. And not just disobeyed, but had a rebellious attitude towards God. And you can see that because when they're confronted by prophets, they continue in their wicked and evil way. As you work with Christians and try to restore them to wholeness, um, you'll find that many of them have kind of a subconscious attitude of rebellion and that God doesn't care about them, that he won't do what's right for me. Uh, when I tell God what I want or when I want it or how I want it done and he doesn't follow my plan, I become frustrated. And with each frustration or each fr disappointment, I take one more step away from trusting God and trusting his authority in my life. And eventually, I just ignore God completely. So this is kind of the path that leads to rebellion. So rebellion against God is often this kind of attitude. And they're usually not aware of this attitude even. But you can hear it in their words and see it in their actions. So there's two aspects to rebellion. The most common one is that the person rebels in response to the authority. That the authority um, acts in such an unfair way from their perspective that they feel justified rebelling against the authority. So sometimes rebellions in response to, um, let's see, abuse of power or misuse of power from their perspective. The second case are those who respond, oh, sorry, this, the second case are those who respond uh, on their own initiative. There's no authority that's wronged them. There's no, it's not a response to an authority that's wronged them. Instead, it just comes from within. It's by their own choice. It's by their own initiative, not as a response. So there's two different aspects to rebellion. Now, there's many different relationships that involve authorities. You know, there's um, God and prophet. There's um, pastor and church member. There's uh, boss, employee. <coughs> There's government citizen. There's police citizen. Husband wife is a um, authority relationship. So is parent child. Parent child is another relationship like that. 
So we're going to focus on the husband-wife relationship first, and then later we'll talk about its parent-child relationship. And from the principles you see in these two cases, you can, I think you can uh, extrapolate it to all these other um, roles of authority. Men, it says that you're supposed to love your wife like you love your own body. Husbands. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. So we're supposed to love our wives like we love our own body. Right? So men, when are you supposed to love your wife? Maybe I should ask the ladies instead. Is women, when should your husband love you? Okay, always. Even when it's difficult, your husband is supposed to love you. Right? Not just when it's easy to love him, uh, love you, but also when it's, it's difficult. Now, I just have to say, wives, you can make it really difficult for your husband to love you to love you like they love their own body. And you can make it difficult by being irresponsible or being untrustworthy or being dangerous. Wives are supposed to respect their husbands. Wives are supposed to respect their husbands even when it's difficult. So submitting out of obedience, why do they submit to their husbands? Now, let's back up. Why did God make the man the head of the house? Is it because he's smarter? Say that. Nope, it doesn't say that at all. It says it simply that that was God's choice because he made man first. It's not that your husband is smarter. Or husbands, it's not because you're smarter. That's why you're in charge. That's not why. God made the choice to put you in charge, and it wasn't because you were smarter. Wives, you're supposed to respect your husband. Why should you respect them? Because they're your husband. The respect comes from his position. So there's a certain amount of respect that you're supposed to show to your husband because of his position as your husband. So women, wives, when are you supposed to respect your husband? You're supposed to respect them even when it's difficult. Okay, Respect them even when it's difficult. And why should you respect them? Because God asked you to. So God asked the man to be the head and God asked the wives to submit to their husbands. Now here's the thing, husbands. You can make it really difficult for your wife to respect you by being irresponsible as a husband or by being untrustworthy as a husband or by being dangerous as a husband. So Ephesians 5.33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's not always easy, but God has given each a role and given very clear instructions to the wife to respect her husband and to the husband to love his wife as he loves his own body. To love it like Christ loved the church. Now that's hard. That's hard to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Men, 
God is not going to praise you for glorying in your position or your power over your wife. God's not going to ask you, did you keep your boot on your wife's neck? This is not a question God's going to ask you. He did not make you the head of the house in order to show your power over your wife. He made you the head of the house because he holds you more responsible for their well-being. Not, he did not make you the head of the house. He did not make you the husband in order to show your power over your wife. God does not delight in a husband that uses his position to maximize his own comfort and leisure. So God may ask you this, why? Why didn't you take care of the wife and the children that I gave you? I made you the head. You were responsible for their well-being. Why didn't you care for them? That's the question God's going to ask you, not whether you kept your boot on your wife's neck. Sometimes the husband rebels against God's authority. And he is so irresponsible, or he's so untrustworthy, or he's so dangerous, that we can say that he has stopped being a husband. And that their marriage certificate is meaningless. Sometimes the wife stops being a wife. They stop doing those things that God holds them responsible for. Though hard, the marriage can become meaningful again if both the wife and the husband are willing to reconcile, to accept responsibility again, and to stop these harmful behaviors towards each other. Sometimes neither is, is willing to reconcile or one of them refuses to stop their bad behaviors. And so... Um, the reconciliation isn't either doesn't happen or it's not true reconciliation. Okay, so let's talk about husband and wife temptations. Okay, now after the fall, God said to Adam and also to Eve that, you know what? Life's not going to be easy anymore. Life's not going to be easy anymore. To Adam, he said he would sweat when he worked and there would be thorns and thistles. Now, was God just talking to farmers when he said this? No. There's principles here, and the principle is that life isn't going to be easy. There's going to be toil, and there's going to be mm, things to overcome, thorns and thistles. And he also said uh, Eve would have greater pain in childbirth and be ruled by her husband. So can just imagine that for a minute. You know what? Here's God. Adam, life's not going to be easy anymore. You're going to sweat and there's going to be thorns and thistles now. So how did Adam respond? Did he say, yay! No, this is not good. No, Adam didn't want to be in the world. He wanted to be back in the garden. But God said, you're in the world now. 
There's sweat, there's thorns, there's thistles. And when he spoke to Eve and said, Okay, Eve, while you sinned, I gave you just one rule to follow, and you broke it, just like Adam. And so here's the consequence. Um, effectively, they didn't receive God's full blessing anymore. Uh, specifically, the, God said that they will die now. They won't live forever. But when he talked to Eve, he said, Now, you know, life's not going to be so easy. You're in the world now, and when you give birth, your pain is going to be greater. And you know what? Adam is going to rule over you. Your husband's going to rule over you. And so how did, re how did Eve respond? Was she delighted? I don't think so. Eve probably said, I want to be back in the garden. I don't want to be in the world. But God said, you're not in the garden anymore. You're in the world now. So sometimes the sons of Adam, the men, they want to escape this curse. They want to escape the sweat and the thorns and the thistles. And sometimes the daughters of Eve want to escape the curse. So how, how do the sons of man escape this curse? Well, they leave. They leave their families. They leave their responsibilities. But when they do, God still holds them accountable for that family. And so that's their sin against God, against their wife, and against their children. So how do the daughters of Eve, how do women, try to escape their curse? Well, <clears throat> they try to escape by ruling over their husband instead. Instead of being ruled, they try to rule. <clears throat> they try to take over the headship. That's how they try to escape the curse. But God made the man the head of the family and God asked the woman to submit herself under him as a wife to respect him. Okay, so let's talk about husband and wife decision making. Okay, husbands, if you make decisions without knowing what your wife thinks, then how can you say that you love her like you love your own body? If you always do things your way and never her way, how can you say you love her like your own body? I think if you ask her if she feels loved when you make all the decisions without including her, she's clearly going to say, no, I don't feel loved when you do that. Now, wives, wives, if you constantly pressure your husband to do things your way or belittle him, can you say that you respect him? That you submit to him? On the other hand, if you never voice your own opinion and you just agree with him without telling him your thoughts and feelings, how can he know your needs and the family needs? And so when it comes to decisions, you should include, you should talk about these things. The major decisions you should talk about together. Now, of course, there's a lot of smaller decisions and you, you should agree on how to decide those. But for the bigger things, you should include your wife in the decision 
Wives, what if you disagree with your husband? He's decided this is what he's going to do. You talked about it, you shared your feelings, but he decided to do it his way and you really don't agree with him. Okay, well, you need to express your disagreement, but you need to do it in a respectful way. Now, if you go up to him and say, you are the stupidest person who ever lived, and how can you possibly make a decision like this? That's not respectful. That's not respectful. You are not respecting him when you speak in that way. You need to approach him gently um, and in a respectful way. And husbands, when they appeal to you like this, when they disagree and they appeal with respect, you need to let them do that. And you need to ask her questions so that you can understand why she thinks the way she does. Wives, what if he still, after you appeal, he still is going to do it his way and you still feel really uncomfortable with this decision? Then appeal to him again in a respectful way and husbands, allow them to appeal again. You need to listen. The decision's important, but the process is also important. Okay, now wives, what if he still, even after you appeal the second time, he still is determined to do this thing his way and you still don't agree? Okay, well, he's the head. He gets to decide. He gets to decide. And so then you can pray and and tell God, I am so thankful I'm not responsible for that decision. Even though you're not responsible for the decision, you might still suffer from it. And so maybe the hardest job in the world is to be a wife. If the wife has been wronged by her husband, he's been irresponsible or he's been untrustworthy or um, he has been dangerous, she needs to go before God and to extend forgiveness to accuse and forgive him for those things. If they've been disrespectful to their husband, uh, if they have belittled him in some way, if they have taken away his position as, as the head of the home, then the wives need to go before God, confess and ask for forgiveness. They stand responsible for God for their part, not their spouse's part. They need to uh, accuse and forgive their spouse for not fulfilling their responsibility, but then they need to confess if there's something that they've done wrong, if they feel guilty because of their own conscience or they feel convicted by God's Spirit, they need to confess that and ask God's forgiveness. And then after the forgiveness is done in their own personal sessions, the wife needs to decide whether she's going to accept responsibility, the responsibility of a wife, responsibility of her role. And the husband needs to make the same decision whether he accepts the responsibility for his role. And of course, once the forgiveness is done, the reconciliation can begin. And um, if, if they both want to be reconciled, the reconciliation can be, begin. And there might be 
it might have to work on communication or other things as part of the reconciliation process. Okay, so let me give you some examples of husband-wife. All right, I'll give you. I'll share one from my own life first. It's okay. When we were first married, I think it was um, in the first few years of marriage, I had this great idea. I thought I need to buy a stereo. You know, this was the 70s. Everybody was buying stereos, and so I went to Best Buy, and uh, there it was. And because it was last year's model, it was on sale. Significantly discounted. 30% discount. And so I decided on the spot to buy that stereo. A thousand dollar stereo. That's how much I spent. And I brought it home and I imagined dancing in the living room with my wife. Well, when she saw what I bought and heard how much it cost, she didn't feel like dancing. She was quite angry that I had made this decision without including her. And $1,000 was a lot of money to us at that time. And then she said, she asked a very good question. She said, so how are we going to eat this month? I didn't buy it on credit. I paid cash. And so, um, you know, that was a good question. And it was hard. We had a hard month as far as making ends meet. And I had to... Uh, pay some of our bills and things with a credit card instead of the cash that we had. And so um, I had made this decision and I didn't include Denise and she was angry. And she should be, shouldn't she? I'm supposed to love her like I love my own body. So how can I make a major decision like that and not talk to her about it? Okay, so here's another example is that this um, couple had been married for 20 years and they fought almost every single night. And sometimes they even fought with knives and cleavers. Uh, three times she had gone to the hospital for lacerations. And so she came to do sessions and she was really, really angry at her husband. And so I listened to her story. I said, um, um, a, a husband shouldn't treat his wife this way. He's supposed to love his wife like he loves his own body. This is his sin against God and you. And so she prayed and accused her husband before God for this, for his sin. And it went on for quite a long time. Uh, maybe uh, 20 minutes as she re as different memories came to her mind and she about them fighting and um, and so then eventually um, no other fights came to her mind and so I said that um, maybe you should tell your Heavenly Father what he did maybe you should accuse him for this uh, I said you've told God what he did um, for the past 20 minutes, you told him what he did. But maybe you should ask God to do justice for you. Tell God that you're willing to forgive your husband. No, that's not what I said.
So when she finished accusing him in prayer, and it was quite emotional, I said, why would you forgive him? He's, what he did is terrible. And I said, if you trust God enough to believe that he will do justice for you and that you will be satisfied by his justice, then forgive your husband. Hand it over to God. Hand this burden over to God. Trust him to do justice for you. And so it was hard at first, the thought of, you know, not trying to do anything herself anymore to make him pay for what he's done. It was hard to trust God that much. But eventually she did. Eventually she prayed. She prayed sincerely and decided to hand her husband over to God. She forgave him. Now, what's interesting is almost immediately after she forgave him, she felt conviction. She said, I just realized for the first time in 20 years that I have never respected my husband as my husband. Not even one day. And she knew that was wrong. And so she confessed it sincerely from her heart. And she, lots of memories came to her mind as she confessed this. So she confessed for quite a while also as one story led to another and all these different times that she had treated him disrespectfully. And then she asked God to forgive her. And now there was peace in the room. You know that peace that only can come from God. And there was peace in the room. Now, a week after we had these sessions, um, she went to her husband. She felt that she should go to him and apologize for never respecting him as her husband. And so she did. A week after that, her husband became a Christian. I suppose he thought, well, if my wife can change, there must be a God or something like that. But he became a Christian. Yeah, so uh, there may be wrongs that have been done to you as a wife by your husband or wrongs to you as a husband. And so you need to take those before God in prayer. And you should do it together with the safe helper. It's very powerful when a safe helper can add their prayer to yours. It's very special to have somebody hear what happened, somebody else hear what happened without holding back and to have them add their prayer to your prayer. Okay. 
Then one last example is that this um, this husband this husband always took credit for the tuition money that they gave their daughter for college. He always said, "Oh, this money's from me, you know, sweetheart, you know, and I love you and." Um, Enjoy your time in college and study hard. And he never gave any credit to his wife. But in fact, the money came from her. He had wasted all their money on other things. And so the the savings for her college education didn't exist anymore. And so the mother, from her salary, was paying for the daughter's tuition. But the father would say, it's from me. And so the mother was really angry about this. And so she's trying to figure out, how can I get even? How can I get revenge? Well, I should I should tell it differently because it rolled out differently in the session. So in the session, she accused her husband of this and forgave him and there was many other things too that he had done that were just very cruel, very mean, not very loving, not loving. And so she accused him one by one and forgave him for these things one by one, handed him over to God, handed those issues over to God and um, one by one and then she forgave him. And then... She said, oh, so when he did all these things to me, I tried to find a way to make him pay. But I had to find a way to make him pay without getting caught. So what I did is um, I took some chicken poop, put it in his water, and he got the flu. And then every time he'd run for the bathroom, I would laugh. She said, do you think I need to confess that? Now, it was hard for me not to laugh aloud. But in fact, what she did was wrong. It was not respectful. And if he knew that, he would be very angry. And so she went before God and she confessed that. And then she asked God's forgiveness. So people can be very creative in the way that they get their revenge, but God says vengeance is his, that justice is his, that we should leave space for him to do justice. And so um, she confessed her sin against her husband, asked God forgiveness. All right, so if um, a wife comes to you for sessions, you need to listen to her and help her pray and to forgive her husband if she has things against him. And there's oftentimes there's others that contribute to those sins, so there's a greater circle of people. And so you have to accuse and forgive them also. And she may also need to confess uh, things that she did, wrongs that she committed against him, whether it was by her initiative or by her own response. And then if she had this attitude towards him, an attitude of rebellion, then um, she needs to confess that also. I just thought of one other example. So this um, 
elder at the church um, came home and said, there's a new club in the neighborhood. There's a new club in the neighborhood. Uh, the husbands are swapping wives for a night. We should join. Okay, so wives, if you were in that situation, what would you do? Would you say, oh, okay, honey, you're the head of the house. If that's what you want to do, okay. No, no, no. He's asking her to sin against God by this. She's one with her husband. Her husband is asking her to sin against God and actually to sin against him. And so the answer should be no. I won't do that. Now, I know sometimes people quote Sarah and how she just obeyed Abraham in all circumstances. And so they should just say yes. Uh, but nobody ever talks about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they both agreed to give the money for the sale of their land, and then they didn't give the full amount, and then they lied. First, Ananias lied to Peter, and so then Ananias fell dead. Peter rebuked him, and he fell dead. And then Sapphira came in, and she agreed with everything her husband said, and and Peter rebuked her, and she fell dead. So it didn't work out so good for her following um, her husband's uh, commands. So, um, yeah, so if your husband asks you to sin, that's a different situation. You have to go before God, accuse and forgive him for even asking. And, um, and you need God's wisdom on how to answer maybe, but... Um, you would be you wouldn't be obeying your husband but you wouldn't be rebelling against him unless you turn your back on him as an authority in other situations too so that's the uh, the story on a husband and wife thanks for your time i am starting on page 89 in your syllabus this is Chapter 13, Rebellion and Authority Issues. Um, Mike has talked about um, rebellion in general and the husband and wife relationship. And I'm going to start by talking now about parents and children. Um, let me just pray, please, before we begin. Father, I thank you for um, this opportunity to share these words. And I just pray that you will um, give me the words to say that words that will be understood in a way that they will be useful for those who are listening. Father, thank you for your love and for giving us um, your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We know that rebellion can be subtle. That um, there's usually an incident in life that we may identify as the beginning of rebellion but there were probably several steps and events that happened before we actually got to that point of rebelling. 
And when you're looking at the parent-child relationship or the child-parent relationship, it really goes both ways. But we start with the child, with the parent-child relationship. We know that in Ephesians 6, um, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Other um, translations will say, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. So what that's saying is that as parents, we have an authority over our children. And our job is to love them, to nurture them, to bring them up in the knowledge and in training and instruction of the Lord. If we do that, many times that allows the child to act in appropriate ways. It's when we provoke our children to anger that... Um, a child responds in rebellion because they feel like there is no other way. Um, when we use our position unjustly and unfairly, it's very, very difficult for a child to rationalize a child, rationalize in their mind that says, my parents are wrong in their behavior. How do I act righteously? They react out of their frustration, they're feeling unloved, and they rebel. The parents' um, sin can be in what they do, such as criticism, verbal abuse, physical abuse, or parents can sin out of what we, that is commission. We say parents can also sin out of omission, which is what they failed to do. They failed to give words of affirmation. One parent fails to stop another in their um, abuse of a child. And a lot of times this causes betrayal. The child feels betrayed by um, a parent when they fail to admit. Whatever happens when a child, when a child responds because of a parent's misuse of authority, then both are wrong. Both parties are guilty. The child, who may be now an adult and going through prayer resolution, needs to accuse the parent of their bad behavior, and then they need to confess their own behavior toward it um, because of the rebellion. Our Our actions as parents can have lasting effects upon children. When a mother criticizes or a father um, does not show affirmation to a child or there's abuse, the child loses heart, we say. They feel unloved, unwanted. And that can last a long time in their life. We helped a young woman, I'm going to call her Mary, whose mother She was the oldest of the children, and the mother tended to criticize her more than she criticized the other children, and she compared her to her sister. 
you know, why aren't you like your sister? Your sister does this. Your sister is really cute, you know. Mary felt dismissed by her mother. And when she tried to share things later on in life that were hurting, her mother dismissed them. She felt her mother was very dismissive. Her father, he didn't join in the criticism or the comparison. He told her that he loved her, but he never stepped in to stop the mother from the criticism. And saying to Mary, your mom is wrong in the way that she's treating you. He just kept quiet. So she felt unworthy. She felt unloved. She called herself a screw-up. She said, I can never do anything right. She doubted herself. She didn't feel like she deserved love. And later on, when she married someone she thought was a Christian who changed after marriage and became very verbally and emotionally abusive, she couldn't tell her parents. She didn't feel safe sharing with her parents what was going on for quite some time. When she came to us and we began dealing with her parents, it was really hard for her to accuse her mother because my mom loves me. She did love me. She does love me. I can't accuse her. It took some time before she was able to come and say, Father, my mother does love me, but this is what she did to me. That feeling of not being able to accuse a parent is quite common. It Because we feel like our parents, we're supposed to respect them. We're taught to respect them. But if they have not treated us in the way that God wants them to treat us as children, we have the right to bring that action before our Heavenly Father. If we don't accuse our parents of the wrong that they have done, it's like condoning their action. It's like saying, what you did, Mom, was okay. It was all right that you treated me that way. And with time, Mary was able to accuse her mother and her father of their parts in this betrayal of what they did. Another thing that came out of this that we realized is because Mary did not trust her parents, she transferred that distrust onto God. He's not trustworthy either because look what he gave me. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. So as parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but love them with justly, treat them justly, discipline them in love, and instruct them and train them in the way that the Lord would have us to bring them up, but not abusing our relationship with them. Now, now children... You, we are taught to respect our parents. The Old Testament, in both um, Exodus and Deuteronomy, there's a lot of verses about children respecting your parents. In fact, there's one that um, says that a rebellious and a disobedient son is to be... Th- <coughs> Excuse me. All right. A rebellious 
and a disobedient son is to be stoned. But that's the assumption that the parents are righteous. And this is not one disobedience or one rebellious act. This says a pattern of rebellion, a pattern of disobedience. The son is to be brought forward. But the parents have to be righteous. They cannot be provoking their child to anger or the child would not be stoned. So one of the commandments is children, honor your parents as an and as it said in in Ephesians, for this is what is right. And if you honor your parents, this brings things from the Lord. So there is a distortion in the way that children look at their parents when there is a breaking and a betrayal. Um, that goes with not saying something. When they don't say something, then the child assumes that they are the ones who are wrong. So as we're working with our hurting ones and we're back to them as children, they have to take responsibility for their acts regardless of what their parents did. Um, And they need to rightfully hold their parents responsible for what they did. Another way that we rebel besides parents is those who are under who we are under authority. There are people in our lives. Um, it could be an employer. It could be when we're younger, a babysitter, a teacher. Um, it could be um, a pastor. Could be government. All of these are people that God has placed in authority over us. And when we ignore them, and I'm going to do this my way, that's rebellion. And God says we have to be hold, held accountable for that. Um, rebellion can occur, like I said, between a lot of different authorities. Husband and wife, parent, child, employee, employer. But as believers, we are held responsible for our actions. No matter what they do, we are responsible for our actions and making sure that they are not rebellious in nature. Now, one thing that we do see sometimes is what we call transference. So, when you see a pattern of rebellion against employers, so you have an employee who rebels against employers who don't do things the way they think they should, what started that? Where was the first act of rebellion? It's a pattern. But we need to go back and take care of the first act of rebellion. Was it against a parent? Was it against a spouse? And this is what we have found, is that if there's rebellion in the workplace multiple times, that where does it start? We need to go through and ask the Heavenly Father to find out where was the first act of rebellion that planted that seed And now there's many problems. Um, You see that when somebody said, well, I left this job because this boss. I got fired from this job because this boss. Um, I decided to leave this job because of this boss. You start to look for patterns of rebellion. Because where they found one person distrustful in a work situation, they transferred that to to other employers. 
And as I mentioned, the young woman that we worked with, when her parents were not trustworthy and she felt betrayed by them, she transferred that to God. When When it turned out that her husband became abusive, her comment was, I don't deserve um, love. Look what God gave me. She was blaming God for her abusive husband. And it was all right for her to be angry with God, but she needed to confess that and confess her anger and then look at, really, what was she saying? And she had to confess that there were signs that her husband could turn abusive, but she ignored them. There were subtle hints from the Holy Spirit that this was not the right match. And we all know that hindsight is much better than in the beginning. And so she had to deal with these um, as she went on and ask God for forgiveness for transferring her distrust of her parents onto him. And it renewed her relationship with her Heavenly Father. And she could begin to look at him as a Heavenly Father as she dealt with the um, wounds that her father, her own earthly father, had given her. Um, So we know that um, we can transfer authority, um, transfer rebellion from one authority to another. And we do see that quite often in the workplace when that happens. Sometimes rebellion is obvious, and sometimes it's very, very subtle um, when we see that. Pastors, is there rebellion um, against a pastor? Um, I don't like what he's saying. I don't like the way that he treated my friend. I don't like um, the way he came in as a new pastor and is just changing everything. Um I do remember that as a boss I had one time. I was teaching prenatal classes, and she had never taught prenatal classes before, but she was put in charge of our group, and she came in and said, we're going to change it, we're going to do it this way, this way, and this way. And I think as a group, we felt like rebelling, but I think that time we handled it well. We went to her, and we said, we have tried this in the past, and this is what has happened. This is why we do it this way. And she was willing to listen and came around. And I give her a lot of credit um, for that. But it just made me realize that if I ever became a manager, you don't come in and upset the apple cart completely. If there's changes to be made, you do so slowly, one at a time. But our attitude toward that goes a long way to do we rebel or not. Sometimes pastors do hurt sheep, and you need to accuse and forgive. Sometimes sheep bite pastors, and you need to confess and ask for forgiveness. So when we see a pattern in a person's life of abusing authority, then we need them to confess that they have abused that authority. When we see a pattern in a person's life of them not accepting authority, then they need to look for that transfer of, I've taken it from one person and transferred it on to another person. From one boss who mistreated me 
Now all bosses are going to mistreat me. They're not going to listen to me. And we need to confess that and um, ask God to help us see our new boss in the light of what they have to bring, not in the light of the past bosses, um, heirs in their way. So we can see rebellion in many, many ways. And we see rebellion, um, we see the, the, the idea that it can be transferred um, from one person to another. Now, disobedience is different than rebellion. Disobedience is still accepting the authority, but not doing what they asked you to do. Rebellion is when you put off the authority in your life and deny them the place that they have in your life. Now, if you go to page 93 in your syllabus, you see the steps for resolving the effects of rebellion and transfer. So again, we have our basic prayer of forgiveness. And we want to um, add some steps to that. So again, we have discussed and we have talked about the issue. And we know, the hurting one knows what they need to accuse um, the person they are rebelling against. So I remember an example from my own life when I was just a very small child. And um, I have used this example before, but I think it bears repeating. We had a babysitter who, for some reason, I didn't like her. My sister, who was a year older, didn't like her. We were probably six and seven at the time, maybe five and six. It's one of those picture memories that I can pull up in my mind. We have a younger sister who's four years younger than I am. So she was probably two or three at the time. And she was probably misbehaving. And the babysitter probably disciplined her. Back then, she probably gave her a swat on the bottom. And, oh, that upset us. We thought that was terrible. Now, as I look back, my youngest sister probably was disobeying. She might have been throwing a fit, having a tantrum. And I think it was right that the babysitter disciplined her. But in my six-year-old mind, it was not right. And my sister and I stood at the top of the stairs yelling down. We were upstairs by our bedroom yelling down at the babysitter that she had no right to treat our sister the way she had treated her. Of course, my mom and dad found out about it and made us apologize and reminded us that we had no right to treat the babysitter that way, to talk to her that way, because she was in charge of us that night, and she did not abuse her power. And so I had to confess that even as a six-year-old, I was disrespectful, saying inappropriate things. I don't even remember what names I probably called her, if I called her names, but I know that my attitude was disrespectful toward her. I confessed that, asked for forgiveness. There really was nothing to accuse her of. It was on my part. And I did it. Other times, when it comes to authority, I know that our children have had teachers that are not the best teachers in the world. 
But we have taught them, you still have to respect her as your teacher. You don't get to say and and say disrespectful things to her, about her. They never did to her, but about her. Yes, we understood she was not a very good teacher, but they had to respect her because she was their teacher. And knowing that if we did that to them when they were in junior high, it would be helping them to do that later on in life when they found people who it was hard to respect but were in authority over them. So when these issues come up, what do we do? We understand the issues clearly. We've talked about it. We accuse the one who was in authority, if pertinent. We choose to forgive them or not. And if we forgive them, we ask God to do justice. We give up the right to accuse them of this again. If somebody's having a hard time forgiving, then you just ask them, do you want to continue to carry this burden around? God's not going to forgive you for your part until you're willing to forgive them for their part. Do you want to carry that burden? Then we confess our part. We ask for forgiveness and receive God's forgiveness. Then if this involves a pattern of unjust transfer, we confess that and acknowledge that. And we ask God to forgive us for transferring the the behavior of one person over to another person who had not done anything to deserve that, but we had transferred it to it. We acknowledge this pattern, how it was carried out, and what damage that has done to us. Because this boss was this way, I have to accuse them, but I had no right to treat my next boss in the same way because of that first boss's unjust behavior. So I acknowledge the pattern and how it was carried out. I confess that I did this and ask the Father to forgive me for doing this and receive his forgiveness. Then I reject the pattern. I tell God, I don't want this pattern in my life anymore. I don't want to continue to treat people who are in authority over me with this kind of behavior. And I ask God to break that pattern that has been established in my life. To break it and release me to freedom to live and treat people the way they deserve to be treated. Not because of this other person, but how do they deserve to be treated on their own merits. And I ask him to help me to find a new way, a healthy way of dealing with injustice and abuse that might come into my life because of someone in authority. Give me a new way to deal with it, Father, a healthy way to deal with it. And then as safe others, we witness that prayer and acknowledge what they have done and agree with them that their accusations were correct, their initial confessions were correct, that they were right to ask God to break this pattern, and God has broken it. It is done. Because he said he would do it. It is done. And that he is going to give them freedom and help them to find a way to deal with it justly. 
that he will give them a new way and a new path. And as with other times, if there are negative emotions that are involved in the situation, we ask God to take those far away because we don't need them anymore. They were there to help us see the wrong that was done to them. So the negative emotions Mary had toward her mother, she asked the father to take those away. The feelings of unloved, the feeling that um, that she felt herself cowering whenever her mother would criticize her, to take those far away because she didn't need them anymore, and to put those um, memories of those events under the control of the Holy Spirit so that she didn't bring them out to act... Um, incriminate herself again, see, I'm not lovable, nor could Satan bring them out and use them against her. And if because of the betrayal, there are family bonds that have been broken, we ask the Father to restore them, if that's appropriate. Is there um, a restoration that needs to happen in some kind of a relationship or between my boss um, and I? Do I, I need to ask God to restore it to a proper employer-employee relationship? Because now that I have gotten rid of the transference that I did um, of a former boss onto them. Um, and any other issues that have come out of this rebellion, I need to ask God to help me deal with any other um, issues that have come out. So again... These are going to come out at several times, rebellion and um, the possibility of transferring that rebellion from one person to another are going to come out in many ways in the story. But as you're listening to the story, work backwards. Where did the rebellion start? What, where did, who was the first one that they rebelled against when they didn't like the way they were being treated? And maybe there was wrong. Maybe it was justified. But where was it not justified? And they needed to confess that. So this is another area that after you have gone through um, and got the history, you're going to go back and start getting the stories. And you're going to see acts of rebellion. And sometimes it comes out in a subtle way. And you need to confess it. Um, and you need to accuse that person and confess it. But as the safe other, you're going to be asking questions of the hurting one to help them find the root, to help them find um, where they need to start to dig out the rebellion. Because God does not want us to be rebellious. He has put authority in our lives for a purpose. Many times to guide us. Many times to lead us. But when we have that attitude of, I'm not listening to them, they have no place in our life, then we are rebellious and we need to confess that and dig it out and get rid of it because that is not how God wants us to treat each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor could be your boss your employer, your parent, a neighbor, a peer. Who is it that you have unloved because they had some authority in your life and you did not like it? Father, I just pray that you'll help us to recognize 
patterns of rebellion in our life, that we may be able to dig them out, that we may be able to stop them with your help, that we may be able to not transfer our dislike of one person because of a title onto another person, but that we would respect each person who is has some authority over us for who they are, that you want us to learn from them. So, Father, I thank you that you give us the freedom to release these bonds of rebellion and be able to live a life that is loving and caring and showing your love, even, Father, for those who are in authority that we don't agree with us. You have given us a way to treat them and how to respect them, even if we don't like their actions. We can answer in a way that is loving and pleasing to you. Thank you for showing us that, Father. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Again, if you have questions, we will have a discussion group tonight. So please join us for discussions after this webinar and help us um, and let us help you. Or you can email them to webinar at cross-resources.com and we will be happy as a teaching team to answer your questions. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day.